The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In 2004, Steve Shadrach was writing a small article called Six Reasons Why I Follow Jesus. Here's what he wrote that year. Sometimes I think the word Christian is one of the most misused words in the English language. And people who call themselves Christians misuse it as badly as anybody else does. Here in the South, which is where Steve Shadrach is from, nine out of 10 people you ask, are you a Christian? Almost instantly say yes. I did, he writes. I was 18. I had a Christian mother. I went to church. I owned a Bible. I ate apple pie. I believed in God. I was even vice president of my Fellowship of Christian Athletes chapter. But was I a follower of Jesus Christ? No. No way. I didn't even know that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus. But Jesus meant to make the complicated simple. His message, two words, follow me. And today's sermon is titled, Following Jesus. In the sermon, uh, to make the ground that we're going to cover a little more simple. Here are the three parts that we'll traverse this morning. Part one, verses 12 through 17, we'll see that Jesus, the light dawns. The question then for us is, has it truly dawned on me? Secondly, and this is really the meat of today's sermon, verses 18 through 22, Jesus, the light beckons. But do we really know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Third, Jesus, the light's power to break sin's curse. That's verses 23 through 25. But do we fully grasp the gospel of the kingdom? Those are the three parts, the three implied questions. Let's look together now in God's word in part one. Jesus, the light dawns. Look in verse 12. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. John the Baptist, we've read about in chapter three, is the forerunner to Jesus. But now notice At the time that John the Baptist is in prison, Jesus makes a geographical move. He moves from Judea into Galilee. Why? Well, in part because John the Baptist, the forerunner, has now finished forerunning. Jesus now launches fully his public ministry. This, we could say, is the full grand opening of Jesus' public ministry. There's another reason, too, that's geographically important that the original readers, I think, would catch. Herod's key place of governance was Galilee. And Herod is the person who had thrown John the Baptist in prison. And the reason Herod had thrown John the Baptist in prison is because John the Baptist dared to call sin in Herod's life sin. Here in particular is what the sin was. Herod was married, but he saw another married woman whom he wanted to be his wife. That woman we read was married to Herod's brother, And so Herod came and took his brother's wife and then divorced his own wife and made her his new wife. And John the Baptist dared to call sin, sin. And what did he get for it? Imprisonment. Now, normally, if someone with that power is imprisoning people for calling sin, sin, you run the other way. But where did Jesus go? (laughs) Into Galilee, the very place Herod has imprisoned John. And now Jesus' first word in his ministry, verse 17, repent. We learn something then about the character of Jesus here. The only time Jesus will go to Jerusalem 
is not because he's fleeing Herod, but because he's going to the cross. So Jesus' fearlessness leads him to the place where the light most needs to shine. Now notice verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And now notice verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so God chooses to launch the ministry of light, the ministry of his son, where the need is greatest, where the world is darkest. Uh, Lion King was one of my favorite Disney cartoons. And I love the scene where Mufasa, the, the father, brings Simba, his son, on top of Pride Rock. And there he sees all the Pride Lands. And he tells him, everywhere that is the light is our kingdom. But there's a shadowy space over there. And so Simba says, what is that? And his dad says something like, well, that's the Shadowlands. You must never go there. Now, I've noticed that that scene in The Lion King has been turned into a meme that's often used for sports fans. My favorite one is this one. I'm from Michigan, as you know. And so Mufasa looks out to his son and says, you see all that place where the light is? And his son says, yes. And he says, that is Michigan. And then he says, well, what's that dark area over there in the corner? That is Ohio State country. You must never go there. <laughs> I love that meme. But it, it indicates something that we understand. There are places uh, on a serious level that we think of as a good place to be from. And there are other places on a serious level that you wouldn't really want to be thought of as growing up there. Because the people there are people you don't necessarily want to be associated with. Did you notice in verse 15 where God chooses to associate his son with? Notice Galilee of the Gentiles, the very people that the Jews think of as uncultural, uncivilized, non-religious, non-moral. That's where the light dawns. This is really good news for us because it means that God cares about the darkest of places and the most lost of people, which is all of us. And so the good news for us this morning is that Jesus is a savior for the whole world. There really is a straight line in the gospel of Matthew from the light dawning in the darkness to the great commission to the nations, to the whole world. Jesus here has come to shine light, not on the righteous, but remember who he's called to repentance, sinners. So praise God, there's hope even in the shadow of death. Praise God, God sends light even where it's the darkest. Verse 16, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the light dawns. But has it dawned on you? Verse 17, Jesus presses the point precisely. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is, without question, the key word. You perhaps know that I think it's the key word because a few weeks ago I spent almost the entire sermon on the word repent. I hate referring you to something I've already preached, but if you didn't hear the sermon, receive your king, please listen to it because it's all about what the word repentance means. I can't re-preach that sermon now, but I'll give you this summary. The word repent does not mean remorse. Everybody feels sorry. It's not what repent means. 
Repent doesn't mean regret. Uh, I wish I wouldn't have had that pizza last night. Repent doesn't mean blame shifting. Repent doesn't mean rationalization. Well, if you knew my parents. No, repent actually means a fundamental change of oneself. As I said in that previous sermon, repentance is what is actually seen after someone says they're sorry. Repentance is fruit that only God could produce. Everything else is a counterfeit. In repentance, we turn from ourselves and we turn to King Jesus. This is why he ties the word repent to the phrase, the kingdom is at hand. Now, it is a shock and embarrassment how rarely we hear the word repent in American evangelicalism. In an American church, you hear believe, you hear benefits, you almost never hear that your life is fundamentally off course and you must repent. But this is how Jesus begins his sermon. And this is how the gospel tells us we must understand Jesus and is the only way to receive him. Now the repent might seem like an abstract concept and so praise God in our passage today, it's going to be made concrete in the history of what the first disciples did. All right, so part one of the sermon was the light dawns as it dawned on you. But now part two, the light beckons. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? And this is really the meat of the passage today. So look with me now in verse 17 all the way through verse 22. From that time, Jesus said, repent, and now he's going to call followers. Now, if you have the notes on the screen, or if you have the ones I emailed, I have six elements of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me give this caution first. Some of you might be thinking, but, but Josh, um, there are other places in the Bible that talk about what a Christian is, and you're right. The Bible talks about justification. The Bible talks about adoption. The Bible will use the word save. The Bible will talk about humility. I am not saying that verses 17 through 22 are everything the Bible has to say about what a Christian is, but they are the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a Christian. They are the foundation. This is the very beginning of what it means for someone to follow Christ. So whatever we find in this passage, we must not overlook because it is foundational. So here's my first of six. One follows Jesus when God turns us in the right direction through repentance. So the people he's about to call are called on the basis of what he kept repeating in verse 17, repent. Now to repent requires humility because to repent means that you were going the wrong direction. When my wife and I got married, we started out our marriage in Michigan, but my wife is from South Carolina. And I remember, I believe it was our first Christmas, we decided to drive down from Michigan to South Carolina. And I remember that year very, very well. It was a very, very snowy Christmas. And all through Michigan, through Ohio, as we kept driving, we got near the mountains between Kentucky and Tennessee, and the snow was everywhere. And we were young, and we were newly married, and we probably weren't the most wise, and we probably should have stopped and got a hotel, but we had no money, and we figured we'd press on through. And I remember we pulled over at a gas station to refill as there's this terrible blizzard, and Steph bought one of those pops, you know, uh, they're like 128 ounces. They're more than anyone could ever drink in three days. But she got one of those. We got back in the car. We're in that little four-cylinder Honda Civic. The thing is so small. I normally drive too fast. That day, I don't think I topped 35. And as we're out in the drive, 
The snow's so bad um, that there's only two tracks and they're made by the car in front of you. You've driven in weather like this before. And I'm behind a semi-truck and behind me is another semi-truck. And my attitude is, I am not going past, I mean, it's so bad, I'm gonna stay in these tracks. But I was going so slowly that the semi-truck behind me felt like I was going too slow. That's pretty slow. And so he passed me. And when he passed me, he kicked up all sorts of snow and suddenly we couldn't see. And then we got out of those two tracks and our little Honda Civic hit the snow and then we started spinning. And when we were spinning, you know how time stops. And I watched all 128 ounces pop up to the roof. (laughs) And as cherry pop is on the ceiling of our thing and we're spinning, I'm thinking, we're doing this only at Thanksgiving from now on. (laughs) But when our spinning came to a stop, our quarter panel hit the back, those side rails that keep you from going over the mountain. And then our car popped back out and we were facing oncoming traffic. And as we're facing oncoming traffic and I see the headlights of the next car coming, I thought, oh, this is what Jesus means when he says, repent. You're facing the wrong direction and judgment is coming on you. And if you don't turn, you have certain doom awaiting you. No, I know nobody says that in America. I know. I know that when you go to church, you're told Jesus can make your children more obedient and he can fix your marriage and he can improve your 401k. And all of those may be true. But Jesus begins by saying, your situation is so perilous that if you do not turn from yourself and come to me, there is no hope for you. We must realize Jesus begins with the truth and the truth is repent. Number two, the second thing about following Jesus, this one is so obvious and yet nearly everyone trips on it. Wait for it, here you go. Number two, to follow Jesus means you follow Jesus. All right. To follow Jesus means you follow Jesus. But this is where most people miss it. To follow Jesus means you listen to Jesus. You obey Jesus. You submit to Jesus. Like that guy who says he's an author that's never published anything. If you go around and say you're a follower of Jesus, who makes it a plan to not listen to and obey Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. It's really, really simple. But I've met countless people over the years who tell me, oh, I really like Jesus. I just don't like what he has to say about sexuality. I don't appreciate a lot of his ethics. I'm not sure I agree with him on the church. Um, But I really like Jesus. I don't know if the miracles really happen, though. And I'm like, well, you know, then you're not a follower of Jesus. You're a follower of you. And there are some things you like about Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus. To follow Jesus most obviously means you follow Jesus. Whatever he has to say, whatever he wants for you. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? A.W. Tozer wrote it this way. Either Jesus is Lord of all, Or he's not Lord at all. It makes no sense to say you're a follower of Jesus who has made it your plan to not, in fact, follow Jesus. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that means we never sin. Peter sinned grievously. But I'm saying that we understand the relationship is one in which he is the leader and we are the follower. And therefore, we are happy to follow his lead, whatever it is. Many people, though, err by thinking that they follow Jesus while they actually follow themselves. And this happens on a popular level often, so I'll pick one example, but many others could be given. 
Rachel Hollis is one of those self-help gurus who writes books and is an Instagram influencer and tells women how to live their best life now. She's also one of those people who tells you that she's a Christian. But in all of her books and all of her podcasts and all of her Instagram influencing, what she actually wants you to do is follow yourself. Well, she wants you to follow her too, (laughs) but she mainly wants you to follow herself. In a fantastic um, referendum on Rachel Hollis's foolish self-help theology, Jen Oshman wrote an excellent article in 2019 for the Gospel Coalition, and the title of it was a play on Rachel Hollis's books. Rachel Hollis's books usually say something like, girl, wash your face, or girl, stop apologizing, or girl, live your best life. And so Jen Oshman's title of her book was, girl, follow Jesus. (laughs) And in the article, Jen Oshman explains that Rachel Hollis believes that you should wholeheartedly follow yourself while claiming that she is a follower of Jesus and that these are incongruous. And so Jen Oshman concludes, I beg you to reject Rachel Hollis's teaching because it's both exhausting and damning. Why is it exhausting to follow yourself? Do you know how much weight it is to be your own Lord and Savior? And it's also damning. Do you know where the road leads when you're your own Lord and Savior? So at the most obvious fundamental level, I urge you to notice from verse 18 and 19 this. Look now with me in God's word, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, follow me. The most foundational thing of being a follower of Jesus is indeed following Jesus. But now number three, notice the end of verse 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Here's the third thing. Jesus makes his followers fishers of men. I don't want you to miss this point. Every single follower of Jesus will be used by Jesus to help others follow Jesus. Every single follower of Jesus will be used by others, will be used by Jesus to help others follow Jesus. I don't want to say this in a glib way or in an overly harsh way, but let me tell you a true illustration, which is why I'm so burdened about this. I have a relative who I love very dearly. We grew up together. We're friends. He tells me all the time that he's a Christian. But his wife is not a Christian. And they have two daughters who are upper elementary, about which he is not concerned that they are not Christians. In fact, over Christmas, there was a situation that came up in their family that needed prayer. And my aunt, his mom, the girl's grandma, gathered the family together and said, let's pray. And after she prayed, these upper elementary girls said, what was that name you prayed to? Who is Jesus? I've never heard that name. Now, these are the upper elementary daughters of a man who says he's a Christian. Listen, if you think you're a follower of Jesus and people close to you would have no idea that you're a follower of Jesus, it's probably because you're not actually a follower of Jesus. Jesus makes every follower of his someone who is able to help others follow Jesus. I don't mean that in a way that causes you to be discouraged. I understand that um, there is a great sense in which we struggle in this area and it's unnatural to us. But notice then the verb. Notice Jesus did not say, follow me and be a fisher of men. 
Be encouraged by this. He said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. The the very point then is you don't have this ability intrinsically or naturally, but if you come to me, I will give it to you and enable you to do it. And we don't all do it in the same skill level, of course. There's a learning curve and a a steep on-ramp, but God will enable us to help other followers become followers of Christ. Jesus then has made his commission something that he enables those he's commissioned to fulfill. One other sort of technical point here, but but let me make sure I make it. It's become very, very popular in recent Christendom to talk about secular work as a calling, which is right. The Protestant Reformation helped us in that point. But sometimes when we have like intersect cohorts about faith and work and doing our work well, we talk about our work in such a way that we say, hey, if you're great at your work, your, your vocational job or calling, whatever it is, then that's the most important thing about you and you don't have to do anything else for Christ. But did you notice what these people left in order to become fishers of men? They, they left their job, right? This, this wasn't like a Saturday morning hobby for them. This was the way they put food on the table. That tells us something very important. Whatever your vocational job is during the week, whatever your vocational calling is, it is to be shaped and informed by the commission to make new followers of Christ. Meaning that whatever God made you good at and gifted at should be shaped and informed by how you can use it to help other people follow Jesus. This is the very foundation of what it means to help follow Jesus. All right, now number four and look in verse 20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Here's the fourth thing then about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus is a decisive and urgent decision. Is a decisive and urgent decision. They understand that this decision is of urgent importance. What's considered the first English novel, the first novel in the English language, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in 1678. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, whose name is also Christian, starts out in the city of destruction. And when he realizes that he's on the road to destruction and he needs to turn around so that he can have eternal life. Though he tries to persuade others around him, he realizes that eternal life is so urgent and so necessary that he must leave everything, his home, his work, his city, so that he can have eternal life. And there's this wonderful moment in the book where he puts his fingers in his ears and he runs out of the city saying out loud to himself, eternal life, eternal life. You see John Bunyan and his work understood that eternal life is urgently important. And so did the original followers of Jesus. Now number five, no one follows Jesus alone. No one follows Jesus alone. Look in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. Now notice verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John. Many people have told me something like this over the years. Josh, I really like Jesus, but I can't stand Christians. (laughs) Part of me has sympathy on that, right? Because many people claim to be Christians who aren't, and they give Jesus a bad name. Jesus will say that directly in Matthew 7, verse 22. But the other part of me wants to say, well, you can't like Jesus but hate his body. 
Do you remember when Saul is on the road to Damascus and he's going to persecute Christians and then Jesus stops him? Do you remember what Jesus says to Saul? Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can't kill my followers without hurting me. They are me. They are my body. In fact, Jesus will say this in John 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so ought ye also to love one another. It's kind of easy to love people out there. It's a lot different to love people in here. That's how you know you're a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you think I'm exaggerating the point, in 1 John 2, the Bible says this, they went out from us, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might be made plain that they are not of us. If you're one of those people that you're like, man, I like Jesus, I hate Christians. Every few years I gotta find a new group of Christians because I just can't stand them. I can never get along with any of them. It might be possible that you're not actually a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus with other followers of Jesus. And if you go through the Bible, you'll notice that it's always a community thing from the Old Testament people all the way through the New. Sixth and finally, verses 21 through 22. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, verse 22, immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the sixth and final thing I'll say about following Jesus from today's passage. Following Jesus may mean leaving loved ones behind. My parents both grew up in non-Christian homes. They did not know Christ. They had never heard about Christ. They did not know the gospel. When my father first fully heard the gospel, he was in his 20s. He was an adult. When he came to know Christ, he witnessed to my mom. He witnessed to his siblings. He witnessed to his parents. He witnessed to his coworkers. And not everybody responded. Thankfully, my mom did come to know Christ. But I remember dad telling me there were about 15 years there where nobody else did. So one day, dad is a new Christian. He's working for the post office at this point. He has a New Testament he always keeps on the dashboard of his van. And as he gets out of work, he goes to the dashboard and he has a break and he opens the the Bible to Matthew and he's in Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, no one who's unwilling to leave father and mother or brother or sister is worthy of me because I will repay tenfold those who are willing to follow me. And he has this moment where he realizes, you know what? Whether or not my parents ever accept Christ or whether or not my siblings do, I have to follow Jesus as we sing it sometimes, though no one join me, still I will follow. And so he commits to that. Years later, uh, he pins my grandpa to the floor and tickles him and says, I'm not going to let you up until you come to church. <laughs> Thankfully, he quits tickling him and grandpa says, all right, fine. My grandpa goes to church. My grandpa goes to the little Baptist church where my parents had been at this point for about 10 years. And grandpa hears the gospel. And that day, grandpa is saved. But for those years where grandma and grandpa weren't following and aunts and uncles weren't following, my dad learned the lesson that we see here in verse 21 and 22. When Jesus calls, even if your father stays in the boat, you follow Jesus, no matter who comes with you. A couple weeks ago, uh, some people from here, from Emmanuel, were over my house while my parents were over. And my dad pulled open his Bible, and in the Bible he has a big picture that my wife sent him because a few years ago we hosted a Scally family reunion at our house in Michigan. And there we had 53 Scallies that showed up. 
And my dad pulled out the picture and showed someone here from Emmanuel how each one of those 53 people is now a follower of Jesus. To God alone be the glory for them. But all of them are followers of Jesus, not in the I believe in God sort of sense, but in the I actually am willing to follow Jesus sense. But you see, that happens after they see someone do it, even if others don't join them. Don't you think the testimony to Zebedee was strong when his own sons leave the boat and leave their father? See, followers of Jesus may have to leave loved ones behind. If we've noticed anything then through four chapters of Matthew, doesn't it seem like following Jesus is a little more disruptive than the way it's casually presented in America? Normally in America, Jesus is someone you sort of squeeze in if he works for you. In the gospel, Jesus is someone who sort of blows up everything that you had previously thought. You're Mary, you're living a normal life, everything's great, and then bam, your life's never the same. You're Joseph, you think you're going to get married to some lady, it's going to be a nice, quiet life, bam, nothing's ever the same. You're the wise men, you're just looking at the stars one night, then you see the right one, nothing's ever the same. You're John the Baptist, your life is never the same. You're the first followers here in the end of chapter 4, your life's never the same. So wait, why would I follow Jesus if it could disrupt my normal And that leads us to part three, the light's power and purpose to break sin's curse. Look now in verse 23 through 25. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I want you to notice from that verse, the word teaching in verse 23 and then the word healing are both modified by the same purpose. What do they both do? They both proclaim the gospel. The purpose of the teaching and the purpose of the healing is to proclaim the gospel. That means that Jesus' healing is wonderful, but it's not an end in and of itself. Jesus' healing has a purpose beyond the healing. His healing is to proclaim the gospel. Did you know that's why he heals? In Matthew 9, the four friends will lower a paralyzed man through the roof, and Jesus will heal them. Do you remember why he heals the man? To show that the Son of Man has power to do what? To forgive sins. He heals and he teaches to proclaim the gospel. The very reason Jesus heals is so that he can show his power over sin's effects. And the same reason he teaches is so that he can show that he's power over sin. Jesus teaches and heals to show that he is the king and that his kingdom will break sin's curse. But see, Jesus will break sin's curse in a way that we wouldn't expect the king to break it. He will break sin's curse by wearing a crown of thorns and by going to a cross. Isn't it interesting that the great physician who could heal so many will not preserve his own life, but instead will in his body take our sins and their consequences and bear them fully. It's because the real reason he heals and the real reason he teaches is to get after the good news we all need, his power over sin and death. He does not protect himself. He sacrifices his own comfort and well-being and he bears sin's penalty in his body. So why would anyone want to follow Jesus? What if that interrupts my normal? The answer, because yes, following Jesus is not casual, it's serious. Following Jesus is not necessarily expedient. It may be more urgent than we think. 
Following Jesus is not without cost. It may include sacrifice. So why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Because of who Jesus is. Following Jesus is wonderful because Matthew 1 told us Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. His name literally means Yahweh saves. Matthew 1 tells us he's also called Emmanuel. He's the only way for God to be with us. Matthew 2 tells us he's the one king of kings that if you worship him, it won't corrode and enslave you. Matthew 3 tells us he's the unique son of whom the father could say, I'm well pleased. He's the unique king upon whom the spirit can rest in delight. He fulfills all righteousness. He is baptized to identify with the sinners of whose sins he will bear and of whose righteousness he will give. We saw in the first half of Matthew 4, Jesus is the only person who's ever successfully resisted the devil perfectly. But now we read today in Matthew 4 that he's the light who's dawned. He's the king who breaks sin's curse. And finally, he's the light that beckons. See, over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, there will be moments as to whether or not we should follow Jesus. We're about to read some of them where there's a crowd that comes, but then they fall away. And then there's some people who have interest for a while, but then they fall away. But remember, the true disciples stick for this reason. Because they know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the pearl of great price, the treasure buried under the ground that everyone might think you're a fool for selling what you had, but you know that what you gain is immeasurably rich. So following Jesus, we see from three standpoints this morning, Jesus is the light dawned. Has it dawned on you who Jesus is? Jesus is the light beckoning. Do you know what it means to follow him? Third, Jesus is the light who breaks sin's power. Have you received it? If this morning you're thinking, well, where do I start? How does this begin? Matthew 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching. And you know what the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you make the kingdom of heaven? By realizing you can't make the kingdom of heaven. It's for those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt and turn from themselves and turn to Christ. And if you do this morning, the kingdom will come to you. Let me pray for us as we conclude our sermon. God, I thank you that Jesus is the light dawned, and I pray that he would overcome the darkness as he has promised he will. God, I thank you that Jesus is the light who beckons And I know that we've gotten used to such a comfortable, counterfeit, casual Christianity that these verses sound radical to us when actually they're, they're really quite normal. These are the foundational blocks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. May we catch the most obvious but most overlooked point. To follow Jesus means that we actually, in fact, follow Jesus. That we recognize him as King of kings and Lord of lords, which surely makes him Lord over my life. So may we then gladly submit to his guidance, his correction, the wisdom that he gives, even when it contradicts our so-thought wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would follow Jesus decisively and urgently, even though it is to some extent costly, because in fact, it's infinitely wonderful. The same Jesus who can say, take up your cross and follow me, can also say, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can those both be true? 
Because in one sense, following Jesus is hard. It means I have to die to self. But in the other sense, following Jesus is infinitely light and easy because I finally live when I let go of myself. So this morning, Lord, I pray that people will know true life. The light has dawned. The light calls, but the light also breaks sin's power and curse, which we could never do. So thank you, Lord, for the one great physician who didn't heal himself, but let himself die so that our sins could be paid, but didn't remain dead and rose victoriously so that we could have access to the eternal joys of the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that he would move in our hearts even as we respond in the next moment. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.